Good morning. It really is a joy to be with you again this morning as we open God's Word. I invite you, if you've got a Bible, to find John 1. As Ron said, we will be looking at select verses from chapter 1. We do finally begin this new sermon series after a bit of a hiccup last Sunday with the weather. We've entitled this series, That Our World May Know. You see, it's, it's our desire that our world would know the love of Christ and not just know it, but to be filled by it and to be transformed by it. That's our vision as a church. That's also John's vision as well, that his world and our world would know Jesus. Not a superficial knowledge of Jesus and not even an artificial knowledge of Jesus, but a, a life-shaking, life-shaping knowledge of Jesus. And that kind of knowing can be difficult. I think there's a danger of approaching Jesus like my kids do supper. They get their plate of food and begin to judge what looks good and what doesn't. They look at the shape, the, the color, the food groups. They will readily eat what looks good to them and beg not to eat what doesn't look very good. If it were up to them, I don't think they'd ever eat a single vegetable. They would push away the very things that help them grow and develop. You and I can do that with Jesus too. As we encounter His words and life, we begin to judge what sounds good to us and what does not. What makes us comfortable and what does not. What makes us secure and what does not. We readily embrace what's easy to accept and we push aside what does not. And when we do that, we end up with a very safe and a very predictable Jesus. A Jesus that won't demand too much of us. Who will let us pursue happiness over holiness. Who will just let us be, but then will show up whenever we need Him. Here's the problem with that, of course. A digestible Jesus. An acceptable Jesus really can't speak into your life or my life. That kind of Jesus can't really challenge us. He really can't even change us. A Jesus that we can manage can never save us. C.S. Lewis captured that tension in his children's book, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. When Susan hears that the Christ figure Aslan is a lion, and, and not just a lion, but the great lion, she is unnerved. I'd thought he was a man, she said. Is he quite safe? I shall feel nervous about meeting a lion. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. John's gospel reminds us that Jesus, the lion of Judah, is not safe, but he is good. He's the king of kings and lord of lords. And John should know. After all, he wasn't just an eyewitness to Jesus' life. He was a close friend. One who had a special relationship as being part of that inner circle. John saw Jesus' humanity and divinity up close and personal. He had a front row seat for it all. And he invites us in. He invites us in to be challenged and changed by Christ's love. To see and experience a love that is both tender and terrifying, heartwarming and head-scratching. A love that 
comforts the afflicted and afflicts the comfortable. So let's begin at the beginning. Verse 1 of John 1. We read these words. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Then skipping down to verse 14. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen His glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, show us Your glory through Jesus as we unpack this incredible chapter. Would You give us ears to hear, eyes to see all that You would have for us this day. We pray in Christ's holy name. Amen. Our text this morning allows us to linger in Christmas just a little bit longer. At the heart, of course, of Christmas is the Incarnation. It's the glorious truth that sent shepherds running to Bethlehem in the middle of the night. That sent wise men on a cross-country trek to see God's King. That God took on flesh and dwelt with His people. What does the Incarnation tell us about Jesus, and really what does it tell us about God? The first thing we see here is that it tells us that Jesus is the Word of God. Now, when Denise and I were in Nashville over our Christmas break, Denise's mom was so gracious and allowed us to have a date night while she took care of the kids. And we found this wonderful little South American kind of California beach restaurant in one of our favorite neighborhoods, and off we went. And when we got there, we got a table immediately and we ordered four uh, different kinds of tacos and these uh, wonderful sides and the food was incredibly delicious the tacos were fantastic but the but the sides were exceptional now normally it seems like sides are more throwaway items right they're they're just something to fill out the plate but but not here in fact the manager said that often people would come and would order just the sides Now, the way that this chef prepared his sides told us a lot about him. It told us about his passion for cooking, his attention to detail, his love of flavor. You can learn a lot about a person by what they do, can't you? That's certainly true of God. I'm sure you didn't miss how John begins in verse 1, in the beginning. Now, where have we heard that language before? Well, of course, it comes from the creation count. In Genesis 1. And as we survey God's creation, as we survey His handiwork, there are things that we can learn about Him. His artistry. His engineering. His love and attention to detail. How He created and what He created tells us something about Him. But it doesn't tell us who He is. It doesn't mean that we know Him take our dining experience once again we learn something about this chef by what he made for our sides but he doesn't but it doesn't tell us who he is as a person we can't know him fully by what he has created in order for us to know him we would have to talk to him wouldn't we you see it's our word that enables us to know one another 
whether as friends or as spouses or as neighbors. We can only know one another through our word, through communication. The clearest revelation of who a person is comes from our word. John says here that the clearest revelation of God is his word. Only his word is not a what, it's a who. Jesus is the word of God. He is the clearest revelation of who God is. We cannot know God except through Jesus. Now, of course, we can know things about God. We already talked about his creativity. We can know about his holiness, his compassion. Yet it does not mean that we truly know him. That can only happen through Jesus. Jesus came as God's ultimate revelation. Now this is where Christianity and other world religions often depart. Some religions claim Jesus was merely a teacher of God's revelation. But Christianity says that Jesus wasn't a teacher of God's revelation. He was God's revelation. To know Jesus was to know God. Others claim that he was merely a prophet who spoke for God. But Christianity says that Jesus wasn't a prophet who spoke for God. He spoke as God. The prophet said, thus says the Lord. But Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you. God means for us to know him. Not just know about him, but to know him personally. But we can only do that through Jesus. Do you want to know God? Then you must know Jesus. Secondly, the incarnation tells us that Jesus is the Word that became flesh. The Word that was with God, that was God, has now become flesh. The Word has become human, which means the Word has become touchable. The Word has become vulnerable, even killable, as one commentator writes. Think of it. The eternal God who created all things and holds all things together by the power of His Word has become vulnerable. Even after 50 years, the murder of Kitty Genovese is still remembered by New Yorkers. That fateful night, Kitty was coming home from working a late shift. She was attacked right outside her apartment building. Her cries for help woke the neighbors uh, who were... uh, opened the windows to see what was going on, and in doing so, scared the attacker away. Despite her cries for help, though, no one came to help her. No one came down to assist her. After realizing that no one was coming to help her, Kitty's attacker returned and killed her. It was later determined by the police that 12 people witnessed her attack and murder from their apartments, but did nothing. So why did they ignore her cry for help? Why didn't they come down to help her? Because you see, they were vulnerable. They were fleshly. They could be killed too. For all they knew, the attacker was still nearby. They were just as vulnerable as Kitty. It's one of the reasons that we don't pick up hitchhikers, isn't it? Or get in the middle of a fight. Because we're vulnerable. We're fleshly. But you see, the Word who became flesh, who became vulnerable, heard our cries. He not only heard our cries, but He came down to us. Not simply at the risk of His own life, but at the very cost of His own life. He willingly laid down His life in order to save us. 
Why would He do that? The writer of Hebrews tells us that Jesus had to become one of us in order to rescue us. In chapter 2, beginning in verse 14, He says, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, He that is Jesus Himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death He might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that He helps, but He helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore, He had to be made like His brothers in every respect so that He might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because He Himself has suffered when tempted, He is able to help those who are being tempted. In becoming one of us, Jesus shares in our humanity. He knows what it's like to be you. He knows what it's like to be tempted repeatedly. He knows what it's like to suffer heartache and disappointment. He knows everything about us. He has shared our humanity in every way. And because He knows what it's like to be us, He not only can sympathize with us, but He can also help us. Isaiah prophesied that Jesus was the wonderful counselor. Well, what makes a counselor wonderful? It's one who has gone through the same problem that you're going through. And because they know what it's like, they don't just sympathize with you in your problem. They know how to help you through that problem. Some of you may know that my little brother is a pastor as well. He pastors a Baptist church down in Mississippi. And when he first started out in pastoral ministry, he wasn't married. And it wasn't long before he was asked to marry a couple in his church. And we both laughed at how absurd it was for a single guy to be offering premarital advice to a couple. Now why? Well, because he couldn't speak about marriage from personal experience. Only as an observer of other marriages. How much more personal or effective would his counsel have been had he been married? Several years ago, a pastor friend of mine was hospitalized for very severe migraine headaches. And one of the things we talked about was his newfound appreciation as a patient. Like me, he had always been on the caregiving side of the bed. He was the one making visits and not the one being visited. He was now the one on the care-receiving side. And yet that experience, he said, profoundly shaped him. He said that experience helped him to understand what it's like to be a patient. As a result, it made him a better pastor and counselor because he had experienced what others were experiencing. That's why Jesus is a wonderful counselor. He has experienced it all. He knows what it's like to be rejected. He knows what it's like to be disappointed. He knows what it's like to be misunderstood and treated unfairly. He knows what it's like to suffer. Are you broke? So is Jesus. Are you misunderstood? So is Jesus. Are you lonely? So is Jesus. Are you facing death? So did Jesus. Go to Him because He understands. He has been where you have been. Go to Him because He cares for you. John says that Jesus is able to help those who are being tempted. 
And yet there are times when it doesn't seem like Jesus is listening to us. Some of you have prayed. You've gone to Jesus and He hasn't answered your prayer. You may even feel like that He's abandoned you. What then? Know that Jesus has even experienced abandonment as well. Remember His prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane. Jesus pleads with the Father, if there is any other way for salvation to come that does not require the cross, if there's any other way for the people's guilt to be atoned for, let it be so. Yet Jesus was turned down. God's answer was no. When you're in trouble, when temptation is knocking at your door, go to Jesus. Go to the wonderful Counselor who understands it all. Go to the One who understands you perfectly. The One who cares for you perfectly. Do you trust Him like that? Will you trust Him like that? Thirdly, we see in the Incarnation that Jesus is the Word that dwelt among us. The Word that was with God, that was God, became flesh and dwelt among us with His glory. John says the Word has come to take up a residence among His people. The Word has come to live in the midst of His people. But more literally, John says that the Word has come to tabernacle among us. if If you know your Old Testament, then you might know how significant that term truly is. In Exodus 32, Moses is dealing with a fallout from this golden calf worship project of the Israelites. This resulted in God pronouncing judgment on His people. In Exodus 33, Moses intercedes on behalf of his people. He appeals first to his special relationship to the Lord and then to the Lord's special relationship to His people. God answers Moses' request and He does spare the people from destruction. And he, and he further pledges that He will accompany the people into the promised land. And as a sign of God's covenant faithfulness, Moses asks God, show me your glory. Show me your presence. God tells Moses that you can't handle my glory. It's too much for you. It will kill you. Because I love you, I will allow you to experience though my goodness and my mercy. And in Exodus 34, we read that Moses is sheltered in the cleft of the rock as God's glory passes by, as God's name is revealed before him. And Moses hears the goodness of the Lord who proclaims to him, The Lord, the Lord, is a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. And then Moses asked the Lord, he begs the Lord, please go in the midst of your people. And God's answer is the tabernacle, which begins to be built in chapter 35. The tabernacle serves now as God's dwelling place God will conceal His glory behind the veil of the Holy of Holies. God tabernacled Himself before the people. His presence was in the midst of the people, though they could not behold His glory. But that all changed when the Word became flesh. 
Jesus came and tabernacled among us so that we could now behold God's glory. God's presence, God's glory was revealed in Jesus. All could see it. And it changed everything. It meant that Jesus was the end of religion as we know it. It was the end of the temple. The end of sacrifices. The end of priests. Jesus was the fulfillment of all these things. Tim Keller illustrates this beautifully in his book, The King's Cross. In that book, he referenced a sermon by Dick Lucas, who was a pastor in England for many years. And he's recounting the imaginary conversation that an early Christian might have had with a Roman neighbor. The neighbor says to the early Christian, I hear that you are religious. Great! Religion is a good thing. Where is your temple or holy place? We don't have a temple, replies the Christian. Jesus is our temple. No temple, but where do your priests work and do their rituals? We don't have priests to mediate the presence of God, replies the Christian. Jesus is our priest. No priest, but where do you offer your sacrifices to acquire the favor of God? We don't need a sacrifice, replies the Christian. Jesus is our sacrifice. What kind of religion is this, sputters the pagan neighbor. And the answer is, it's no kind of religion at all. You see, religion says that to curry favor with God, we must obey His commands and perform all of His rituals. And then and only then will God accept us and love us and approve of us. But Jesus and Christianity say the opposite. You are already acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. It's out of that acceptance that we obey God's commands. It's out of that sense of approval that we live our lives for Him. Jesus is the end of religion because He has tabernacled among us. We have beheld God's glory in Him. How did Jesus make us acceptable before God? Why can we behold God's glory, but Moses could not? Where Moses was unable to atone for the people's sin, Jesus was more than able to atone for our sin. Jesus was able to satisfy God's justice in all the ways that we sinned against Him. All the ways that we have maligned His character, misused His gifts, stolen His glory. Injustice always demands justice. It demands payment. It demands atonement. Jesus came and tabernacled among us that He might atone for our sins. He came to cover the gulf that existed between God and man. By offering Himself up on the cross, He atoned for our sins, taking the punishment our sins deserved while giving us the reward His righteousness deserved. If you are here this morning and and you want to know God, you must know Jesus, for He is the revelation of God Himself. Do you know Jesus as the wonderful Counselor? The One who knows what it's like to be you? The One who stands ready to help you when you are tempted tempted? Then go to Him. Run to Him. Pour out your heart to Him because He knows and He cares. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You that You have sent us 
the Lord Jesus who knows what it is like to be us. He became vulnerable. He became killable for us. Father, would that truth, would that knowledge transform how we see You? How we see our own lives? That we would live in a place of confidence because we know that we are accepted by You because of Jesus and not because of what we do. Would You free us from the burden of the law that we might live in Your love and be transformed by it. That we might obey You. That we might live for You all the days of our life. We pray in Christ's holy name. Amen.